Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, let me talk to you about this. First of all, you know that I have been emphasizing this as I started my series on Through the Bible, uh, because I will be in the Old Testament for a while. And I've been emphasizing the fact that, uh, that you can find Jesus to one degree or another all throughout the Old Testament. But the reason that I'm doing this, if you've been in the studies on Sunday nights, you know that I've done an Old Testament overview from Genesis to Malachi. I've, I've attacked it from many different ways, putting it in its historical context, its biblical context. We've done a review kind of of each book. I've gone through the categories and the chunks. We've talked about all the empires and how they relate to world history and how all that relates to biblical history. We've done all of that. I've given you all that stuff that you would get in a seminary class if you were taking it and studying it. And so then what I wanted to spend these last couple of uh, Sundays that Brother Greg and I will be swapping off before we start our whole new series, I wanted to spend those going over now some of the theological details of the Old Testament. What are some of the theological points? of the Old Testament? What are some of the doctrines of the Old Testament that line up with what we know as New Testament Christians? And you know what I mean when I say New Testament Christians. I don't mean we throw the Old Testament away. I just mean that we are now living in the New Testament with Jesus Christ as, as our Savior. So, uh, so the, the place that I want to start is Jesus in the Old Testament. Now you guys that have been coming for the last three or four Sundays, you've already got a little jump head start. You understand that. But I just wanted to share some stuff with you tonight. For some of you, all of this will simply be a review, hopefully a good review. For others of you, you will be seeing stuff tonight for the first time that you have never seen before. But I wanted you to see and understand the importance of Jesus in the, in the Old Testament. Now, this understanding of Jesus being in the Old Testament is not something that Christians invented. It's not something the church made up. It's not something that we went and tried to desperately find and look for and kind of tweak the words around so that it fit what we wanted it to say. What I'm getting ready to show you is this is what Jesus declared over and over in several different emphatic ways. He's the one that says, I am in the Old Testament. I am the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about me. He said it over and over and over. The early preaching of the early church was about Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ resurrected, and Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Say, Carl, how do you know that? Two huge ways. We have historical writings from the early church fathers that make that clear, and we also have the scriptures in the book of Acts and other scriptures that talk about how Paul, uh, when he would go into a town, one of the first things he would do is first go to the synagogues, and in several places it says he would stand in the synagogues proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Those are words found in uh, the Bible. So the earliest preaching records we have of the preaching of the early church, the earliest sermon we have from the early church was in Acts chapter 2 when Peter stood up and he preaches. But you know what he did there? He quotes Old Testament scripture and Old Testament ideas to help him understand that Jesus is the Christ. And he preached that Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ resurrected, Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ was and is the Messiah. That was the first sermon. And then from there on, we, as I said, we find the Apostle Paul did the same kind of things. So, so, again, this is not something the church made up. It's not something that Baptists in the South made up in, in, the, in the 1900s or 2000s. Uh, th this is the message, has been the message of the early church from the beginning of the church, from the birth of the church. Even before the birth of the church, it was the message of Jesus to his disciples and to those that even hated him was, you know, the message was, I am who you've been looking for. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one that the Old Testament talks about. So, 
it's very important that we do a little study of this to, to familiarize and to, uh, to, to, to familiarize your, uh, ourselves with the understanding from Genesis to Malachi. It is about Jesus Christ. All right? Now, let me show you some scriptures, and I've got them up here, but you probably just gonna at least want to write the references down because I've got a bunch of them. Turn the page if you would. I want to show you some scriptures where Jesus himself declares that he is the Christ. I've only got a few more things to say to fill in some time, John. <laughs> so... It's okay, brother. Um, I don't run that very much. I know, I know you don't, and you're good to do this for me. I, there you go. Thank you. I think you can move it just with the arrows, right? Okay, good. Uh, yes, that's the first. Okay, good. There we are. All right, I've got a couple scriptures on each page. You might want to at least write the references down. Listen to the words of Jesus in these different scriptural references. John chapter 5, verse 39, 40. That's one of my favorite ones that Jesus said for several reasons. But he's talking to the Pharisees. He's getting on to them because they made a living out of searching the scriptures and defining the categories of the laws and the prophecies and teaching the law. And the, you know, they, they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, but they missed him. And this is what he says. He says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. See, the Bible, listen to me, guys. The Bible is the word of God. It is the holy word of God. But it in and of itself doesn't save anybody. It's the blood of Jesus. But the Bible should point you to the blood of Jesus, okay? And so this is what Jesus was saying. They knew the word back and forth, but they were lost. Why? Because they had missed the point of the word. He said, you diligently study the scriptures because by them you think you possess eternal life. He's saying, because, of your, because you have knowledge of the scriptures, because you know the laws, you think you're going to heaven because God loves you now because you know the laws. That's what he said. He says... But these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. That's a pretty straightforward statement, isn't it? The reason I like this is because not only does it talk about, does Jesus declare that the scriptures are about him, but it also addresses problems even in the modern day Christian movement. And that is, Bible study is awesome. We are a Bible study church. But please don't think that because you know a lot of stuff about the Bible that that makes you saved. I'm, I'm, okay? We live in a culture where it's very easy, if you want to, to know a lot of stuff about the Bible. And you could very easily get comfortable thinking, man, I know the Bible backwards and forwards. Therefore, I must be, I must be okay with God. You might or might not be, depending upon whether you're covered by the blood. The other reason I like this is because it makes the point of this radical kind of King James only movement where you know where you know if you don't have this Bible you're not saved. If you don't read this Bible you're not saved. If you don't if you weren't saved under this Bible you're not saved. I mean it gets really ridiculous. Again, let me say, I love the King James. If you have the King James, you're welcome to use it here. We quote from it, we read it, we talk about it. I'm not trashing the King James. I am trashing the King James only movement and there is a difference. Because the movement gets berserk, it really worships a version of the Bible. And I like to use this scripture when I'm talking to somebody who's really wrapped up in because they're making the same mistakes that the Pharisees made. The Pharisees worshipped their version, they worshipped their translation, they worshipped their commentaries the, the, uh, on the version, they worshipped their understanding of the law, they literally worshipped those things and thought and declared to others that if others would follow that way that they would go to heaven like they were going to heaven. And Jesus chewed them out about that. 
And to me, this makes the same point that you could make to a King James-only radical person, and that is, listen, you diligently study the Scriptures, you've got your version, you think that's great, and you're missing the whole point. The whole point of any Bible translation is to point men to Jesus Christ. Right? Now, I will admit to you, there are some translations that are a whole lot better than others, and there are some that I would tell you to stay away from entirely. I will admit that to you. But I can also say that there are four or five really what I consider studious translations that I can put in the hand of any man or woman and say, this is the Word of God. Study it, read it, find Jesus in it, and give your life to Jesus. And so that's why I like this scripture, because it kind of does all of that for me. Okay? But there are many others, and I'll show you some of them. Luke chapter 24 says, uh, uh, this is the testimony of uh, the disciples after they had been at the tomb. It says, then some of our companions went to the tomb, found just as the woman had said, but him, that is Jesus, they did not see he said to them, th these are the two guys on the Emmaus road, that is, and Jesus appears to them, and they're down and out, and Jesus is resurrected. He's walking along the road with them. They don't really recognize him for who he is yet. And so he said to them, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ, when, whenever he refers to himself as the Christ, kind of third person, he's talking about the Old Testament prophecies of the Christ, which is the Greek way of saying the Hebrew word Messiah, or the Anointed, or the Holy One. All of those terms are used in the Old Testament for, for this understanding that somehow, someday, God Himself, and I'm going to show you this in, in, the, in the Scriptures, in Zechariah especially, God Himself was going to somehow put on flesh and live among His people. He Himself was going to pay for the sins of His people. These are prophecies. That coming of God in the flesh was known to the Jews as the coming of the Messiah or the coming of the Anointed One or the Christ or the Holy One of God. So that's why Jesus says, so did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? Now, what He implied by that statement was, hey guys, don't you know the Scriptures? Don't you know the Scriptures talk about the Christ having to suffer just like this? Don't you know that the Scriptures talk about the Messiah had to die, had to be crucified, but would be resurrected? Did you, don't you know the Scriptures? That's what he was chewing them out about. And then he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. All right, you students of Old Testament introduction, what did he mean by Moses and all the prophets? The what? The Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. In New Testament days, they did not refer to Genesis to Malachi as the Old Testament. It wasn't the Old Testament. That's what the early church, I mean, that's what the church began to refer to those eventually. Because the New Testament documents were still being lived in Jesus. I mean, excuse me, the New Testament was still being lived in Jesus. And then the New Testament documents would follow the Christ event. So the Jews referred, when they referred to Genesis through Malachi, one of the ways, one of the most popular ways that they would refer to it is the law and the prophets. And that kind of included the whole sweeping panorama of Genesis through Malachi. So Jesus says here, and beginning with the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so this is not something the church made up, Jesus in the Old Testament. This is not something we have to force ourselves to find. This is what Jesus declared about himself. Turn the page if you would. Here's a couple of others. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, and he quotes the Scriptures. And he says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Who's the stone he's talking about? Of course, himself. 
and they knew it. They got mad at him for it, the Bible says. If you keep reading the rest of that passage there, they got mad at him because they knew that he was talking about them and him and hit their rejection of him. And, and so what, how does he refer to himself? He says, don't you know the Scriptures? Don't you know that I am the cornerstone that the Scriptures talked about? If you fall on me, if you stumble over me, you know, it's an eternal thing. Don't you know the Scriptures? Okay. And then Mark chapter 14, he said, Am I leading rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out here with swords and clubs to capture me? That, of course, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, And every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But get on with it, boys, because this was prophesied in the Scriptures, and they must be fulfilled. That's what he said. <coughs> so as that was happening, he declared, This was written in the Scriptures. It has to happen. You are fulfilling Biblical prophecy. He said, so go ahead and arrest me. All right, turn the page. So see, not only did he say that the scriptures were about him generally, but he says the scriptures were about him specifically and that there were specific prophecies about specific events in his life. There was one example. Luke chapter 24, verse 44, 45 through 48. It says, Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures, and He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't quote a Scripture when He says that, but He is paraphrasing the teaching of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, that He will suffer, He will die, He will rise... The prophecies of the resurrection in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that if you want a little bit later. And, and he will rise from the dead on the third day. Say, where does it say that in the Old Testament? We'll talk about that if you want. That can be one of your questions if you'd like. Yeah. See see how I put questions in your mouth for you? Okay. And then and he says, and you're a witness. He says, but he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. So he took the Scriptures and said, see here? See what this says? That's about me, and it's about my resurrection, and it's about how I would rise on the third day. And it's about, wouldn't you have liked to have heard that sermon? Okay. All right. Mark chapter 26. Jesus, uh, again, uh, uh, another, pla another place of the uh, prophecy that he proclaimed in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter pulls the sword. And, uh, and then he says, you know, don't you think that, that I could handle this if I wanted to? I could have 12 legions of angels here, guys. Put your sword back. I don't need your sword. And then he ends that by saying, but how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen? This way. Okay? Turn the page. And then John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Now he saw it and was glad. <laughs> Boy, that ticked the Pharisees off. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born. He didn't say I was, he said, I am which is the Hebrew understanding of the eternal nature of God Himself. Not only did He say that He was before Abraham, but He used the words to say that, that He was eternal and that He was God in the flesh with them right then. Before Abraham was, I am. Which infuriated them. At this they picked up stones to stone Him, but Jesus hid Himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. They were going to kill Him. Why? Well, because in their minds he had committed blasphemy. What does blasphemy mean? Claiming equality with God. See? I love it when these people, you know, say, you know, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's something the Christians made up. Well, over and over and over he claimed to be God. Several times the scriptures record where they tried to kill him because he claimed to be God. He knew what they were claiming. 
Okay? All right, turn the page if you would. From Genesis to Malachi, Jesus is there. Now, I'm not going to list every scripture because there are hundreds of them. But I'm going to, list, I'm going to show, go through some of the big ones. Now, I've got some of them written up here and others I've just got a list of them. So bear with me. Get your notes ready and your pen ready. So Genesis chapter 3. In the third chapter of Genesis, we have a prophecy of Jesus Christ. I will admit it's a little under, indirect. It's a little veiled unless you know the whole biblical story. If you know the whole biblical story, it's not veiled at all. This is after the fall after God calls Adam and Eve to his presence, after he calls the, uh, Satan to his presence, that angelic Lucifer whom the Bible calls that serpent, that Nachash, that one who whispers and lies with a magical enchanting voice, Nachash. Okay? He says, uh, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and even above the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. All of this being uh, metaphorically speaking and yet spiritually truthfully speaking. Satan was not a snake. He was Nachash. But yet the scriptures, Jesus calls him the serpent. God calls him a serpent because of his serpent-like, you know, just sneakiness. You know how a snake will quietly slip up on you, bite you and kill you if you're not careful. And, and, and here, this is just a metaphorically, uh, metaphorical way of, of saying, you know, you, 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 you have rejected me. You have... You have uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You have rebelled against me. You've, you've, you've involved yourself in the fall of my creation. And so you, there will be um, circumstances for you. Okay? And so then he goes on to say, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. The King James says, your seed and her seed. Between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. He who? Offspring. Of a woman. What's the offspring of a woman going to be? It's going to be a he. And what's the offspring of a woman going to do? He's going to crush Satan. Now, Satan's going to strike at his heel. In other words, a crippling blow, it will appear. But, but this offspring, this, this seed of the woman, this offspring of the woman, will crush his head. Well, of course, we understand and know that, that it starts right off in Genesis. That's a, that's, a, that's a prophecy of the coming of the Christ who will come from the woman Israel as recorded in Revelation chapter 12 and who will come from the woman Mary as we know and from the scriptures. And he, he was born. He defeated Satan at the cross. Satan thought he was putting Jesus on the cross because of the wickedness of working through the Sanhedrin and the Roman and the government and the politics and all that. Satan thought he was destroying Jesus. As it turned out, all he did was strike his heel. But Satan on the cross and through the re resurrection crushed, I mean Jesus through the cross and, on, and through the resurrection crushed Satan's head. Okay? So now we can sing victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. You say it was... Satan was defeated at the cross? Absolutely. Well, how come there's still so much wickedness? It's like a football game. Fourth quarter, one team's ahead, you know, 46 to nothing. They have the ball. You say, and the, but the game's still going on, right? The other team's still fighting, but they've lost the game. See? Well, folks, the game of life is still going on. Satan's still fighting, but the game's over. Jesus scored the final touchdown that put the, he, I mean, it is, the game is over. Jesus has defeated Satan. The game still plays, Satan still fights, but it is over. Amen? Okay? Okay. All right, so there we go. Turn the page if you would. 
here's some list of stuff. Now, folks, I have preached on a lot of this stuff. Some of it I haven't preached on yet. Some of it I've done in the last several Sundays. Some of it I will do in the Sundays upcoming. But make yourself a list of at least these. These are some of the biggies, some of the biggies in the Old Testament concerning uh, the, the, uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. Of course, there's Exodus 12 and the Passover lamb, and they had to get under the blood of the lamb in order to be saved. I've preached on that a million times. Uh, of course, there's Leviticus, tw well, 23 is the seven feast. I, I didn't mean to include all of that in there. But the book of Leviticus, about the five uh, sacrifices, I preached on that uh, last Sunday. The seven feasts of Israel, and I've shown you how all of that is prophecy of the whole crucifixion, resurrection, coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, the birth of the church, the trumpets blowing, the second coming of Jesus, the judgment, the great day of the Lord, the living together with Jesus forever, all of these, all of these feasts of prophesy of, of the Christ event. And then, of course, the whole tabernacle worship. And there's a whole sermon that I, can, that I have done and can do on the furniture of the tabernacle, the arrangement of the tabernacle, how it all points to Jesus. Of course, you know that then the tabernacle was built the temple was built to represent the tabernacle and you know the holy of holies and all the symbol symbolism of that and only the person who was covered in the blood could go in the holy of holies it was the great high priest and, and he could only do it once a year but yet Hebrews tells us but Jesus is the great high priest he has torn back the veil of the holy of holies and remember what happened at his crucifixion the holy of holies was ripped I mean, he says, he has entered in by his own blood. Once for all, he has made the sacrifice. So, so the whole thing about the tabernacle, the feast, the sacrifice, all of it points to the ministry, life, death, resurrection, and work of Jesus Christ. Then in Numbers, well, I was in there this morning, Numbers chapter 21, the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. That was about Jesus. How do we know? Jesus said it in John chapter 3. He told Nicodemus, he says, you know Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness? He said, that was me. That was about me. He said, because same thing, he said, now you fix and see it with your eyes, and this time it won't be a serpent, it'll be the Son of God on a pole, and you've got to look up if you're going to be saved. Okay? All right, and then we go on, Daniel. Boy, I've preached through Daniel here a couple of years ago. I preached through the whole book of Daniel, and uh, man, we got into Daniel chapter, even before chapter 7, there's pictures of Jesus, but in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. Now remember, Daniel was written probably in the 500s, uh, yeah, the 500s B.C., I'm just trying to think the captivity, the 500s B.C., and he writes and he says, now this is before any New Testament theology, any of our New Testament understanding. He says, and I saw the throne of God and the Ancient of Days was sitting on the throne. And then he said, I saw this little horn who's, who he's already identified as the Antichrist. He says, coming before the throne of God, wagging his tongue and waging war against the saints and uttering blasphemies. He said, but then I saw one who looked like the Son of Man, approaching the throne of the Ancient of Days, and to Him was given all power and glory and dominion, and He defeated the little horn that was wagging His tongue and uttering blasphemies. I mean, that was written in 500 B.C. Daniel, I believe, was taken up to the throne of God and thrust into the future and shown in a, in a, in a parabolic manner the whole understanding of Jesus the Christ being the representation of God himself in the flesh as man on earth, how he himself would defeat the enemy. And isn't that what Genesis 3 said? Okay. That was in Daniel chapter 7. Then you get to Daniel chapter 9 and you talk about the 70 weeks of Daniel. Remember the teaching I did on the, on the, uh, uh, the, the, day, the prophecy about the day of the Lord, Jesus, uh, how many days it would be, and you know, it would be um, from the issuing of a decree to rebuild and reestablish Jerusalem. It'll be seven sevens, and then the anointed will be 
will be cut off, and all, all of this, all, the anointed. What does that mean? Now, that's the English translation, meaning out of the Hebrew, the Messiah, or how you'd say it in Greek, the Christ, the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One. The, uh, and so there's prophecies there about his life, his death, his, his, uh, his ministry. And then, of course, we get to Psalm 22. I've preached on that. It's one of my favorite messages to preach. And the title of my message is, I even remember the title, is What Really Happened at Calvary's Cross? And I really focus in and emphasize when Jesus is hanging there and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And for so long, so many you know, preachers and Bible uh, teachers have said, Well, you know, it's because he had the sin of man on him, which is true. And he said, But, you know, God couldn't look and he turned his back on his son. And now all that sounds wonderful and it's kind of emotional and it tugs at our heart. But Psalm 22 said, no, that did not happen. In fact, at the end of Psalm 22, it says, God did not reject His Holy One. God did not disdain Him. He did not despise Him. He did not turn His back on His Holy One. It says that in the Scriptures. But what it says, it starts off, Psalm 22 starts off with these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then it goes on in striking detail to say, Look, they've surrounded me. Evil men are surrounding me. My bones are, 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 are out of joint. My, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They gamble for my clothing underneath me. Uh, I, it's, it puts chill bumps in my arms right now to even say those words. When was Psalm 22 written? Oh, 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified. And in exacting detail, Psalm 22 lines out what happened on that dreadful day at the cross. When Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He wasn't being mad at God. He wasn't thinking, God didn't turn his back on him. This is what Jesus came to do. He knew what he, knew what he was doing. God the Father knew what he was doing. This was planned in the heavenlies before the beginning of time. He was quoting the first line of Psalm 22 to draw attention to the scriptures so that those evil people who were crucifying him would understand what they were doing. And the Bible records that even one of the Roman soldiers, after Jesus said that, he fell at his feet and he said, Oh my God, we have just crucified the Son of God. That's in the scriptures. Well, he said, well, how would a Roman soldier know the Scripture? The Bible makes it clear that there were a lot of Roman soldiers. How about Cornelius, the Roman centurion? Not only did he know the Scriptures, but he knew about Jesus and asked for Peter to come preach to him and his whole family. A lot of Roman soldiers were familiar with the religions of the people that they conquered, and they read their books, and some of them were even converted to the faiths of different religions. This one Roman soldier apparently knew about Psalm 22, and when Jesus cried it out, apparently was brought back to his memory. An awesome testimony, an awesome prophecy, an awesome picture of Jesus. And then, of course, there's Isaiah 53, the famous suffering servant passage, uh, which just, just, just in great detail again talks about the life and the suffering and the ministry of Jesus and how he took our sins upon himself, how he became our sin, how the punishment that we deserved was placed on his back, and how God delighted in doing this. Now, that makes it sound like God's a mean ogre who did this ugly thing to his son. No, what that means is, is that it was planned from the beginning and he and his son happily pulled it off because they knew that it would mean your salvation. That's what it means. He delighted in doing this. And you read Psalm 53, the suffering servant passage. These are some of the most famous ones, but there's a couple more and then I'm going to open it up for questions. Uh, of course, and then there's hundreds of prophecies concerning his life, his place of birth, uh, the beginning of his ministry, where he would begin, how that would happen, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his second coming. All of this is in the Old Testament. Hundreds of times. Turn the page. 
Some of the most striking to me, and I love these. I love preaching on them. It'll be a while before I get to them on my Sunday morning preaching, but the book of Zechariah. It's one of the minor prophets. It's just a few books before Malachi, which is the last book. Uh, Zechariah. Actually, it's the next to the last book. Uh, but anyway, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It's easy to remember that. 2.10 and 12.10. If you just want to, that's how I remember it. 2.10 and 12.10. Okay, and, and the number 12 has a 2 in it too. Just put a 1 in front of it, and there you go. 2.10 and 12.10. And listen to these scriptures. In 2.10, uh, God says, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares Yahweh. Who is Jesus? God in the flesh. Yahweh in the flesh. That's what he declared when he said before Abraham was, I am. That I am was an indication of his identifying himself as Yahweh. But God had promised this in Zechariah some 400 something years before it happened. He said, I myself am coming. Many nations will be joined with, the, with Yahweh in that day and, and will become my people. Well, <laughs> you know what happened at the crucifixion of Jesus? Many nations all over the world now have joined with his people, the Jews, who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, and people from all nations, all races, all tribes, all over the earth now have given their life to Jesus Christ. And the prophecy declared on that day. What day? On the day that Jesus, that God himself visits us and lives among us. Now that's also, and many Old Testament prophecies have dual veins. That also can be taken as a prophecy of the second coming as well. When Jesus returns, He Himself will live among us, and many nations will be joined with Him on that day. So a lot of Old Testament prophecies have at least two veins, sometimes three veins of prophecy. Pretty cool stuff, huh? All right, look at Zechariah 12, 10. And, and God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. This is unbelievable here. They will look on me, God says, the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. Do you, you hear how God refers to himself and Jesus? All one and the same, but yet different. He says, you will look upon me whom you have pierced. So when we looked at Jesus pierced on the cross, who were we really looking at? God in the flesh. He says, but now, since you can't see that that's me in all my glory, you will refer to him as a him, as a son, as the son of God. And God's basically saying, that's okay. That's okay. The son of God, God the son. But you will look upon me whom you have pierced, but you will, and you will mourn for him as an only son. Isn't, isn't that awesome? 400 something years before it happened. Turn the page. And then Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Remember I told you it's from Genesis to Malachi. Chapter 3, I love this. God's talking about His coming and about Him sending the Messiah, Him putting on flesh, the Christ. He says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, of course, the messenger, of course, we know was John the Baptist. How do we know that? Well, we read it in Scriptures, but Jesus Himself said. He said, if you're looking for Elijah, Jesus said, if you can bear it, John was, is in the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist is the messenger coming. He said, I will send my messenger before me. And suddenly the Adonai, the Lord, capital L, little o, little r, little d, but Adonai is a term used for God and for Jesus all throughout the scriptures. It is a form, it is a term of deity. 
but without using the term Yahweh, but it is a term of deity. He said, so the Adonai that you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says Yahweh. And then he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? <laughs> who can stand when he appears? And he'll be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. So what happens when Jesus comes? He comes. Where does he go? To the temple. What does he do? Overchanges the money. Oh, excuse me, overturns the money changers' tables. Nobody could stand in his presence. What does he do from there for the next three years? He washes them with the soap of the Holy Spirit and the Word, and he convicts them, and he shows them their filth and their sin. He points to the tombs right outside of Jerusalem. By the way, I've stood on the Temple Mount, and you can see the tombs right there, and I know he must have pointed and says, those tombs are whitewashed on the outside, but they're full of dead men's bones on the inside. He said, you're just like them. And he just went, in other words, okay, you're seeking the Christ, you're looking for the Messiah, he will come. And he will come to his temple, and when he comes to his temple, you're not going to be able to stand in his presence because you're going to be so full of sin and hate, and you're going to miss who he is, and you won't even be able to stand in his, in his presence. That's how the Old Testament closes. Genesis to Malachi. It is about Jesus Christ. Jesus declared it. That's not something the church invented. And I've shown you the major ones and the huge ones. And there are many more. There are many more. I mean, I didn't even show you in, uh, uh, where is it, uh, Malachi chapter 5, isn't it? About, um, yeah, uh, out of you, Bethlehem, will come uh, my anointed one. Out of you will come uh, the one whose origins are from ancient of days, from eternal. You know, out of you, Bethlehem. I mean, there are all kinds of prophecies that are just intricate details of, of, of his life, death, ministry, resurrection. Okay, we've got 15 minutes. Questions, comments, observations? Somebody raise your hand. Talk to me. Somebody tell me where in the Bible it is prophesied that Jesus will be risen from the dead on the third day. Somebody tell me that. Somebody look this up because I don't remember the scripture. I can quote it and I think it's in Psalm 51 where, 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 where the word says, You will not let your holy one see decay. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Now, now don't think ahead. Some of you are saying, that doesn't say that Jesus will rise on the third. Just, just wait a minute. Somebody looked at it. Is that where it is, Psalm 51? Does anybody have that? Just use your concordance. Is that where it is, Zeke? Okay, I, I don't, I can't. 16, Psalm 16, 10. So Psalm 51 was not correct, but it is in the Psalm. Psalm 16, y'all turn there. Psalm 16, thank you, Pastor Greg. Psalm 16, 10. Sixteen, ten. Okay, if I move this minute, I want to show you something else. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. Look at verse seven. So, David, who is writing this psalm, this song of worship and praise, said, "I will praise the Lord." I will praise Yahweh who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set before Yahweh always before me. Before, because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, 
nor will you let your Holy One or your Messiah or your Christ see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now go to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you something there and then I want to show you how this makes it clear that he would be in the grave no more than three days. Peter is preaching. The Holy Spirit has come. We're not going to read the whole thing, but look at verse 22. Men of Israel, that's of Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to, to, uh, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I'm so glad I didn't have to preach that sermon. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, see, they quote the Old Testament. The New Testament says the Old Testament's about Jesus. David said about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand and I'll not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay, etc., etc. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would take place, uh, that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, uh, David spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Y'all look at me, and can you say amen, and amen, and amen. Now, I know you say, well, that still doesn't answer the question about three days. Yes, it does. Do you remember when a man named Lazarus died? Mary and Martha, his sisters, were mad at Jesus because he waited till the fourth day to go raise him. You know why? Because the ancient Jews believed with all of their heart that if after, listen, three days the man was still in the grave, he was sure enough dead because it was after the third day, after the third day, that decay started in on the body with the burial techniques they had in those days. That was a given fact. After three days, Jesus waited to the fourth day purposely so that Lazarus' body would already start, would already be in the decay process. What did Mary and Martha say to Jesus when he said, roll back the stone? What did they say? Don't roll that stone back now. Says he, and I love the King James. He stinketh. That's what the King James says. See? He stinketh. What, what, did that, what was she saying? He's now in the decay process. You waited too long. That's when Jesus turned and said, wait a minute. <laughs> do you believe I can do this? Do you know who I am? Do you believe that I can give eternal life? And then he turns to Lazarus. You know the whole story. All right, what does the Old Testament say? You will not let your Messiah see decay. Let me give you another way of saying it. You're not going to let your son stay in the ground any more than three days. There it is. You say, yeah, but that's a little hard to find. <coughs> yeah, unless you're willing to know the Scripture and to seek out God's Word, unless you're willing to study a little bit. Why would God do that? Because those are, that's His heart. It's not out there for everybody to trample on and use like a Ouija board and a, and a, and a, and a crystal ball. But it's there. It's plain as day if you care to see it. He said, I will not let, you will not let your Holy One be in the grave any more than three days. Zeke, your hand was up.